We have a young man at another Christian college, which will go unnamed. It's a fine school if you want to be on a Christian campus and learn some business and some other things. But if you want to know the word and be challenged for the ministry, it's the wrong place to be. This last month, God has spoken to him about going into missions. And I have discovered this week a campus that I can't wait to tell him about, where there's a vibrancy for Christ and for missions. Thanks for being that school that represents Christ so well that we can encourage others to come. If you have your Bible, open it, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 3 and 4, just as we did the other day. Paul's writing to Timothy, but obviously by application, the Holy Spirit has these words for each of us. He said to Timothy, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life so that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. There's a story that's told about a wise old man who lived up in the mountains. He lived up there almost as a hermit. But about once a month he would come down into the valley, into a very small town, And he always stopped in the streets and he had the best stories to tell all of the young boys. They loved to hear his stories about the mountains and the animals and the old days. And most of the little boys loved this old man, but there was in the crowd one little boy who just didn't like the old man. And as a matter of fact, when the old man would come down into the valley, the little boy would try to keep the other kids from going over to see the old man because he was sick of the wise old man. And he always tried to ask the old man questions to try to trick him and to make him look silly, but the old man could always answer the questions. But one day the little boy came up with a plan. He had caught a little bird. And he showed his friends and he said, I'm going to trick that old man. The little boy said, how are you going to do that? He said, I'm going to take this and I'm going to show him. I'm going to say, old man, what do I got in my hands? Little boy said, well, it's just a bird. That's not going to trick him. He said, I know, but then I'm going to put the bird behind my back. I'm going to say, old man, is the bird dead or is the bird alive? If the old man says the bird's dead, I'll open up my hands and he'll fly away. And if the old man says the bird is alive, I'll snuff it out right there. And he'll be wrong and we'll get rid of him. The old man came down, the little boy did exactly what he said. He interrupted the old man telling the story, and he showed him his hands. He said, old man, what do I have in my hand? Just allowing a little peephole. The old man said, my son, you have a bird in your hand. Ah, that's right, old man. But if you know everything, old man, you tell me this. Is the bird dead or is the bird alive? The old man didn't answer. Come on, old man. Is the bird dead or is the bird alive? And the old man said, son, that choice is in your hands. This week we are talking about being a soldier for Christ. And the choice is in your hands. 
You can take everything that's been shared with you, not only in this week, but as God's Spirit's worked in your life all semester long, and you can simply flush it. You can blow it off. Or you can take it to heart. But that choice is in your hands. What will you do with the treasury of God's Word and His calling on your life to be a soldier for Christ? The choice is in your hands. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8 it says, And the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. That grammatical structure gives us no choice about being a witness. Christ said, you're going to be witnesses. The only choice we have is whether we're going to be a good witness or a bad one. But the choice is in our hands. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul challenges Timothy to be a good soldier. And on Wednesday, we talked about two qualities of a good soldier. The first is that a soldier is under authority. And if we're going to be good soldiers of Christ, we must allow Christ to be the head of our life and place ourselves absolutely under his authority. We must depose self, abdicating the throne, and hail Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords in the kingdom of our heart. The second quality of a good soldier was that a good soldier stood willing to endure hardship. A soldier was not one who was looking for the easy way out. He was not like water taking the course of least resistance. But he was like the dam that held back the water, taking the hard stand. Now as we continue, there are two more qualities that come to life, at least for me, out of this passage. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. The third quality of a good soldier is singleness of purpose. The phrase here says that a good soldier keeps himself or herself free from entanglement in other affairs. The two greatest abilities that you have that God wants are abilities that every one of us possesses. I'm amazed that people have musical ability. I have very little. At Blackhawk Baptist Church, I get paid a rather generous salary. Half of it is for the responsibilities to do certain things. The other half, they pay me not to sing. Anytime I want to raise and they say, oh, I don't know, I'm going to sing on Sunday. Okay, you got it. I've got no musical ability. I don't even play a good radio. You know, I just don't have it. And you may look at these ladies who sang today and say, I can't do that. I don't have that ability. That's all right. You may not be like some of the people who come to this great university to challenge you with the word. I certainly don't have the ability of your president, John MacArthur. But every one of us possesses two abilities that God must have before any other ability comes into play. The first ability is your availability. You see, if you haven't made yourself available to God, it doesn't matter whatever other abilities you possess. 
And this passage is saying a soldier keeps himself free from every other entanglement in life so that he's absolutely available. I mean, can you imagine the bugle sounds, the charge is given, and the private says, Oh, Sarge, I'm sorry. I've got a busy day today. Well, go ahead and start without me. If I get time, I'll catch up. Military life doesn't work like that. A soldier is always available. And the greatest ability that any of us have, all of us have, and that is to be available, our availability. And secondly, there's another uh, ability that each of us possess that is just as critical as our availability, and that's our dependability. To be available is essential, but to be dependable is just as important. For you see, somebody may have great ability, and they may even say that they're available, but if they don't show up, they're not dependable. And they're not usable. And sometimes we get so enamored with Christian celebrities and heroes and and this great person and that great person that we fail to see that God wants to use every one of us and he's given us the most critical abilities that we could ever need. Those are availability and dependability. As a good soldier, we need to keep ourselves free from every other entanglement. And stand ready to serve Christ every moment at a moment's notice. I believe one of Satan's greatest strategies in the life of a believer is that if he cannot get us to totally defect from Christ, if he can't get you to compromise morally, compromise in your beliefs and doctrines, and defect back to the world, then his next strategy is to get your life so busy doing good things that they tie your life up so that you're not available to do the best thing that God has for you to do. Satan would love to have you so busy that you don't have time to be a good soldier in Christ. Let me ask you some questions. What have you gained if you achieve a record of academic excellence and acquire knowledge But you fail to grow in your knowledge of Him. What have you gained if you're awarded for academic and athletic achievement, but you have failed to run the race that God has called you to run in? What have you gained If you develop musical skills that in your field of performance, you're a virtuoso, but you have not tuned your heart to sing his praise. What what have you gained if you have put together a network of relationships that you've got friends that are close to you and you've got a support, but you've led no one to an eternal relationship with Christ. You see, we can get so tied down into all of the other good things that we fail to do the best thing. Now, obviously, I'm not here to depreciate academic excellence or to try to dislodge uh, you from your commitments to being excellent in music 
or athletics, drama or speech. I think we ought to be committed to excellence in everything. But I fear that some of us are hiding behind our academic, our extracurricular, and our social activities that we have filled our calendar to when God gives us an opportunity for service and He blows the trumpet and the bugle has sounded the charge. Most of us say, oh, I'd love to. (laughs) But I just, I don't have the time. A good soldier keeps himself or herself free from every other entanglement. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, he said, this one thing I do. Howard Hendricks said, Christians today say, these 40 things I dabble in. And as a soldier in Christ, It's fine if we've got 40 things we dabble in, as long as they never once entangle us from our commitment to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ and to advance His cause into a world that so desperately needs Christ. In high school, I was involved in swimming. As a swimmer, there are some things that are very important. If you want to swim and you want to swim fast, this principle that we're discussing is critical. And that is to be unencumbered, unentangled. Now, you may go out to a track meet and you may see a great one runner on a very cold day out running with a sweatshirt on. Even though it's a meet, but because it's cold, he may or she may choose to wear her sweatshirt. I'd like to suggest to you that you'll never, ever see a swimmer on a cold day say, gee, it's cold, I think I'll wear my sweatshirt in this meet. Dive in with their sweatshirt on. If you do, please call the lifeguard. You can't swim with a sweatshirt on. Why? It entangles you. As a matter of fact, swimmers are so weird that in order to go fast, they shave their heads, their pits, their chests, most of the high school guys really don't need to do that, but they do it anyway, it makes them feel good about themselves, and their legs. Why? Because that little bit of resistance slows them down. In 1969, a young man from our high school by the name of Bill Catt was swimming in the Big Ten Freshman Championships against a young man you may have heard of by the name of Mark Spitz. It was a 50-yard freestyle, down and back. Spitz was the greatest swimmer in the world, and nothing was going to happen that day to change it. But Spitz was more of a 100-butterfly and 200-butterfly man. Bill Cat was a 50-man. But Spitz was still favored, and Spitz kind of came into the meet, really committed to winning, but not quite as committed as Bill Cat. Spitz came with commitment to win. But Bill Catt came with a sacrificial commitment to win. Spitz didn't, but Catt had shaved down. The gun went off, and they went down and back so fast, all the hands touched the wall at the same time. Splashes went up everywhere, and every school jumped up and yelled, We won! It wasn't until the electronic timer stopped that you saw that Bill Catt had beat Mark Spitz by two one-hundredths of a second. 
two one hundredths of a second. Probably every day of his life, Bill Katz says, I beat Mark Smith. It's been 20 years and he's still, I beat Mark Smith. I can't believe that. You know how he did it? He went totally unencumbered. And you see, if we're going to serve Christ, this passage is saying we've got to be absolutely unencumbered. Now, we don't drop out of school. Sorry to disappoint some of you who were using this as ammunition. Dear mom and dad, the Lord spoke to me in chapel today. Nor do we curb our efforts in athletics, music, or any extracurricular activity. But what we do is we take every one of those things and we say, I'm doing this because I'm a soldier of Jesus Christ and I believe this is what he wants me to do. And as I do these things, I will not allow these things to keep me from knowing him and making him known to a lost world. That's the third quality of a good soldier. Verse 3 gave us enduring hardships. Verse 4 gave us keeping unentangled. And now this fourth and final quality. Good soldiers fight. Good soldiers fight the good fight. Constantly, when Paul wrote to Timothy, he used the analogy of warfare. He said in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, in verse 11, Timothy, fight the good fight. Chapter 2 that we're looking at, be a good soldier. Chapter 4, he comes back and he said, Timothy, I have fought the good fight. Soldiers are trained to fight. Most of us know that. But we never fight. Perhaps you've read, probably been required, Stephen Crane's book entitled, The Red Badge of Courage. Let me review that story for you very quickly. The young story centers around a, a young man by the name of Henry Fleming. It's the Civil War and all the men are going off to fight. Why young Henry wants to be one of them. And so he enlists in the army. And he's all excited about going off to war. And as all the soldiers talk about fighting, he's right in the middle telling the stories. And and he just can't wait to fight. The army gets called up and they advance to the front line. and, And his courage mounts with the marching. And the drummer is drumming and the men are marching. And he wants to fight. But then as they approach the front lines... He begins to see some of the wounded of his own army coming back. And his courage begins to fail. And while the battle is raging, he finds himself wandering aimlessly, walking at first towards the front and then retreating towards the back. Wandering over here and then back and kind of caught between courage and fear. And the whole battle takes place with... Henry Fleming never making it to the front line. He gets separated from his division, and as the division is marching back, he falls in line with them, trying to act like, I'm part of the army here. I was at the front. And as I reread this story, I thought, that's the church of Jesus Christ. 
A few of us are on the front lines and the rest of us are trying to vicariously run off of their commitment. Never making it to the front line, but always hanging around those who do as though that makes us soldiers. And most of us never fight the good fight. These statistics are not just off of the head statistics. These have been documented by research and survey of others. Over 95% of all Christians never lead another person to Christ. There's probably 500 of us here today. Let's assume that number for just a moment. That means out of 500 of us here today, 475 of us will never lead another person to Christ in our entire lifetime. And yet all 500 of us say, yep, I'm a soldier of Christ. He can count on me. I'll fight the good fight. But we don't. Bud Wilkinson made this comment. He said, the church of Jesus Christ is just like a Saturday afternoon college football game. There are 22 men out there on the field desperately needing rest and 22,000 men in the stands desperately needing the exercise. Isn't that true? You look around your campus and I bet you'll discover that about 5 or at the most 10% of the people of this school are doing 90% of the spiritual ministry. And the rest of us just kind of walk around and say, yeah, I'm a part of it. The red badge of courage all over again. If we're to fight the good fight, then it's important that we remember that it's a war that takes place on two separate battlefields. The internal battlefield and the external battlefield. How do you fight the internal battle? I think the key word is this. Flee. The internal battle is a battle, to use several biblical expressions, it's a battle with the old man. Or it's a battle with the old nature. Or it's a battle with the flesh. In 1 John chapter 2, he describes the battle as a battle that takes place with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. It's a battle for who will be on the throne. And we will be constantly faced with temptations to gratify the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. There are two passages in the Bible that I think depict graphically how this battle takes place. They're almost parallel. The first is the story found in the book of Joshua of a man by the name of Achan. If you'll remember, the children of Israel attacked Jericho, the walls fell down and they won without losing a man, without losing an arrow. And the next battle they took off was against the city Ai. And when they attacked there, they were defeated. And the Israelites are going, what happened? And God says, it's because one of your people sinned. One of your people disobeyed me and plundered the city of Jericho. And they go through a whole system and they find out the man's name's Achan. And when Achan is confronted, what he said is so insightful into the spiritual warfare. He said, I, I went through the city of Jericho and I saw a wedge of gold, some pieces of silver, and some cloth from Babylon. And I took them, and I hid them 
in my tent. Four different things happen, and it's a pattern of the battle and the warfare in which we fight. First of all, in this internal battle, the first thing that will happen is that we will see an attraction to sin. The Bible is so honest and clear. The Bible never says, don't sin, it's ugly, nasty, and undesirable. No way. The Bible says, don't sin, it's beautiful and it's attractive. The Bible says, sin is a pleasure, but it warns us just for a season. And that's how temptation begins. The first thing it does, it's attraction. The second thing that happens in this battle is that after we're attracted, then we go through a mental commitment of the sin. In this case, Achan said, I saw it and I wanted it. Greed, covetousness, but the appetite took over mentally. The third thing he did was he took it. He actually committed the sin. And then he said, and it's, it's hid in my tent. He attempted to cover it up. Now think of perhaps even a more familiar situation. That's David and Bathsheba, and the pattern is identical. David goes up on top of his roof, he looks out, he stretches, he looks down. He had the highest roof in the house, or in the city, and he looks down into the lower court, and there's Bathsheba. And what happened? Attraction. Same as Achan. Achan saw the money, he saw the lady. Attraction. Second step is identical. Achan said, I, I coveted it. I, I had to have it. David said, I lusted. I wanted her. Mental toying with the sin. Third thing that happened, David took her. Sent for her and engaged in a sexual relationship with her. And the fourth thing he did, same as Achan. He didn't try to hide Bathsheba in his tent. But he tried to cover it up. After David, that that brief encounter has resulted in the pregnancy. So David says, Achan, covered up, I'll cover up. And he's got a, a warrior on the front lines by the name of Uriah. And Uriah is Bathsheba's husband. And so what he does is he sends orders for Uriah to come home, knowing Uriah is going to come home, he's going to stay with his wife, and soldiers and wives will do the thing soldiers and wives will do on leave. And then he'll go back, and nine months later, news will come, congratulations, Uriah, you're a daddy. I don't know whether somebody tipped off Uriah or whether he smelled a rat, but he refused to go home. And David couldn't cover it up. And so as you know the rest of the story, David sent Uriah back to the front line with a sealed order. He gave the order to his commanding officer, and the officer read it and it said, Attack. Have Uriah the Hittite lead the attack, and just as he gets to the battle line, have everybody else withdraw from him. And Uriah attacked, the rest withdrew, and he was killed. David took Bathsheba as his wife. He covered it up. But you know the rest of the story. Nathan the prophet came and confronted him and he was found out. But there is the four-step pattern of the spiritual war. We're going to be attracted, then we're going to desire, then we'll commit the sin, and then we will try to cover it up. Now how do you beat that? How do you win this war? One word, flee. Paul said to the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6, Verse 18, flee from immorality. 
Paul said to Timothy, in this chapter we're looking at verse 22, Timothy, flee from youthful lust. The temptations of our inner battle for materialism, our sexuality, or whatever those internal wars may be, those are not wars we stay and fight and resist. Those are wars that we flee from. During the Vietnamese conflict, one of our most supreme military units were called the Green Berets. And when the Green Berets were trained, they were told that they weren't going to help their country by dying for their country. And if they were faced with a situation where the odds were against them, don't stay and fight and die. They were trained that when they were overwhelmed, that they were to run, run, run away, come again to fight another day. And if we're faced with these type of inner temptations, the Bible says, run, run, run away, come again to fight another day. The greatest example, of course, is Joseph. Joseph's working in Potiphar's house. He's in charge of everything but Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife makes the move. And the Bible says this went on daily. And she finally got so aggressive that while Joseph's in the back of the house, near the bedroom, she really comes on and literally grabs him by the coat and says, Tonight's the night. And Joseph did exactly what God would want him to do and us to do. He ran. He said, Come on, feet, don't fail me now. And he got out of there. And let's face it, we are all human beings, we are all easily tempted by materialism, by sexuality, by the praise of people for more pleasure, for more possessions, for more power, for more prestige. And if we think that we can fight that battle and just daily walk into that temptation, we're fools. The Bible says the way you fight this battle is to flee. That's how we're to handle the internal battle. The external battle, the battle with Satan, the military strategy, is just the opposite. If we're to fight, the Bible says, when we are up against Satan in the battle for this world, that we are not to flee, we are to resist. James chapter 4, it says, resist the devil and he'll do the fleeing. We don't have to flee that one. We resist him and he'll flee. First Peter chapter 5 verse 8 gives a word of warning. It says, uh, beware. Satan is like a roaring predatory lion seeking whom he might devour. But verse 9 doesn't say run. It says, resist him therefore. We must fight against Satan. We are called to resist him. And so when we look at a world that desperately needs Christ and we see all the influences of Satan that may be as extreme as, as the island of Haiti with its voodoo that we heard about in chapel on Wednesday or maybe as sophisticated as the high-rise towers of the suburbs of Los Angeles with its humanistic lifestyle and values, we are not to flee from those. We are to stand our ground and to fight for the eternal souls of men and women. Now, it's interesting that when Paul challenges Timothy to fight, he gives him a unique methodology. Turn back, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. 
Another challenge, it says, verse 11, But you, O man of God, flee all these things. Here it is again, all the materialism, all the sensuality, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and, and, and my thinking underlying this one, gentleness, fight the good fight. You see, when we are working, trying to resist Satan to bring people to Christ, our methodology of warfare is to be gentle. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Can you imagine the military sergeant saying, Welcome to boot camp. We're going to train you to be gentle around here. It doesn't make sense. This insightful comment. A girl came from China to America. She was asked this question, what's the difference between evangelism in America and evangelism in China? Her answer was almost instant. She said, in America, you witness out of aggression. In China, we witness out of love. You see, though we're called to be soldiers, our fighting is to be a fight of love, gentleness, graciousness, righteousness. The word that I like, I hear Chuck Swindoll use it all the time, is winsomeness. As a Christian, we fight by being such a a winsome, gracious person that people want to be around us. We're the type of people they desire to know and, and to embrace socially. And we're to fight with gentleness. That's a paradoxical analogy. Fight gently. I mean, go back to the late 70s when Muhammad Ali was still fighting. Can you picture the big fight, early 70s, between Smoke and Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali? They're in the middle of the fight. Ali's over in his corner. Angelo Dundee is rubbing his shoulders now. He's saying, now champ, you get out there. You keep that left moving. And I want you to hit Smoke and Joe gently. Don't hurt him now. That makes sense. But you know, that's exactly what the Lord's saying to us. He says, I want you to attack Satan's hostages, the world that needs Christ. And I want you to do it gently. I want you to be winsome. I want you to be soft. Somebody said Christians can be divided into three groups represented by three animals. There are chameleons, those of us who change colors. Over here we look like a Christian. Over here, guess what? We have a Christian. There are others of us who aren't like that little lizard animal that changes colors. We're like porcupines. We're true. But have you ever tried to hug a porcupine? I mean, have you ever gone into a tourist store and said, I wanted to buy a stuffed animal for my kids. Do you have any porcupines? Uh, porcupines are unapproachable. You can't embrace them. And then there's a third type of Christian, a, a care bear. You know, and that's what this passage is saying. We're to be a bear. Strong, capable, <laughs> huggable, gentle. And embraceable. We're called to be soldiers and to fight the good fight. The choice is in our hands. General Douglas MacArthur said these words The history of failure in war can be summed up in two words they are too late. 
Too late in comprehending the deadly purpose of a potential enemy. Too late in realizing the mortal danger. Too late in preparedness. Too late in uniting all possible forces for resistance. Too late in standing with one's friends. After these two days, let me sum up what I'm asking you to do in three brief statements. The first one is this. Please, realize that there's a war going on. Don't deny it. Don't try to say, like the ladies of Boston or Washington during the Civil War, it's not really a war. We'll show up with our picnic baskets. Realize there's a real war. Secondly, recognize your calling as a good soldier in Christ. You're drafted. And thirdly, return to the front line. Find some ministry in which you can advance the kingdom of Christ. Just a few suggestions that I know will not be easy to implement. You're stuck here on a Christian campus. You live in the dorms. To the best of your knowledge, all of your professors are Christians. Who am I to witness to? Well, try one of these. Find a local church where you can teach a Sunday school class with children or youth. Become a youth worker. Reach out through a church to a world that needs Christ. Maybe the church will have an evangelism program and you can be a part of that. Find a church if you need to. If you can't do that, spend your summer as a summer intern, missionary. Go with some of the short-term programs like Teen Missions or Missions Ready. Invest your summer on the front lines. Perhaps you could work as a counselor at a Christian camp. During the school year, maybe you could join up with the campus ministry. Maybe you could go to one of the major schools in the valley and, and work with Crusade or the Navigators or InterVarsity Fellowship. Maybe you could have an extension ministry from this campus that would go down and, and do evangelism. Maybe what you ought to do is take a job in Newhall or Valencia or Sargas. Take a job away from the school for the purpose not so much of making money but making contacts with people that you can share Christ with. There was a man on a film I saw. He was a dentist in Portland, Oregon. And he said, we're often challenged to witness at our place of work. He said, I never do that. He said, I happen to work at my place of witness. He said, yeah, I'm a dentist, but I just have an office so that people will come in. And he said, they open up their mouth, I stick both hands in their mouth, and I start asking questions. Uh, anybody ever told you about Christ? <laughs> he said, I got him. He said, I, I just happen to work at my place of witness. Find a place to work so it's a place of witness. But do whatever it takes to move up to the front lines and begin to fight gently. Let's close with these words of Isaac Watts in a hymn that he wrote. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? 
Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease, while others fought to win the prize and sailed the bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to lead me on to God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. Oh God, you have called us today to be soldiers of Christ. Put within our heart a hunger for holiness, that in that inner war we resolve to flee temptation at its first occurrence. God, give us that resolve. Then God, give us a determination that we will be an ambassador for Christ. We will witness and we'll do it gently. Empower us, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen.